Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 30. Reardon. I would have liked nothing better than to rest on my laurels, or my singed backside, but knocking out the winemaker's power was only the first step in our plan, the first step in our OCD, fucked-in-the-head plan, as Winnie had called it. I snatched up the pack and the assault rifle and rumbled down the hill to the toppled stone wall. Once there, I unzipped the pack to draw out a cell phone. One of a trio of throwaways we had purchased at the local Walmart, it was programmed with the numbers of the other two phones, which were carried by Winnie and Ray. I sent a text to both of them about the power being out. No doubt they already had a pretty good idea. But the thing about OCD fucked-in-the-head plans was they had to be executed in a certain order. I opened the pack again and extracted a pair of the captured night vision goggles. After the glare of the cell display, it took a minute or so for my eyes to adjust to the ghostly green of the goggles. It was worth the wait. The few men I could spot were running around like ants from a dug-up hill. Given the breach of the fence and the pyrotechnics at the generator, it must have seemed like they were defending against the Normandy invasion— rather than one guy with a backhoe and a pressure cooker. But even an ersatz Normandy invasion wouldn't be complete without an air assault, and that's what we had in mind for them next. I heard Ray's plane before I saw it. He wanted to build one especially for the mission, but there was no way Winnie was sitting still while he assembled it from scratch. Instead, I coerced him into using a store-bought model of a Piper Cub, with the equivalent of a Molotov cocktail jury-rigged to each wing. I watched as the barely airworthy craft wobbled by overhead, making towards the L-shaped complex of the winery office in the tasting room. Fewer than a hundred yards from the tasting room, the whine of the motor rose, and the piper made a kamikaze dive straight into its pitched roof. It hit with a brittle crunch, and twin fireballs blossomed three feet in the air. Ray had filled the Molotovs with carbon disulfide, white phosphorus, and sulfur, rather than the traditional recipe of gasoline and motor oil. The alternative brew ignited upon exposure to air, avoiding the requirement to fly the plane with pre-lit wicks. It seemed to burn every bit as well as gas and motor oil. Flames from the accelerant ran down the hip of the roof, igniting the shake tiles as it went. Soon the entire face was engulfed, and sparks from the fire were threatening the other wing of the complex, and even some oak barrels stacked by the eaves. The point of the firebombing wasn't to catch the winemaker in the buildings. We had pretty good intelligence that he, and most of his men, were holed up in the wine cave. The point of it was to sow confusion and tie up a portion of his force in fighting the blaze 
while we took our assault underground. Ray was supposed to report the fire next. We figured the arrival of several wailing hook-and-ladder trucks would add that much more distraction, particularly since the winemaker would not want anyone in authority to get a good look at his zombie guards. When the light from the fire grew too intense to watch through the goggles, I turned my attention to my flanks and the slope below. Men were still scurrying hither and yon, but what before had seemed like random movement resolved into an outright retreat. Somewhere, someone had called the ants back to the nest, and a good half-dozen men in military fatigues were charging pell-mell down the hill toward the entrance to the wine cave. No one was even pretending to care about the fire. With a short burst from the assault rifle, I picked off one guard who crossed in front of me. He dropped his own rifle and did two slinky-like somersaults down the hill before colliding with a tree. I squeezed off several more bursts at retreating men, as much to keep up the illusion of a full-scale assault as anything, but no one else went down. When the only ones remaining were me and the zombie guards, I scrambled to my feet and ran in a crouch towards the cave. I heard the doors clang shut just as I set foot on the concrete pad in front. The entrance itself was set back in the hill like a gigantic mouse hole, surrounded by a retaining wall of river rock. The dual oak doors were great iron-bound things with rounded tops. In spite of how sturdy they appeared, a single metal door would have been stronger, if less attractive. I dodged behind a vineyard sprayer parked a dozen yards from the entrance, still concerned about being observed or shot from a bolt hole. Rummaging nervously through the stacks of extra magazines for the P-90 rifle, I eventually located the only other thing in the pack, a six-inch length of galvanized pipe filled with black powder. At first glance, even the bombs Boris Badenov hurled looked more sophisticated, but Ray had at least upgraded the hissing fuse with a 20-second detonation timer. In theory, I was supposed to walk calmly up to the doors, affix the bomb, and throw the switch. In practice, I was shaking so badly I nearly dropped the thing on my toes. My experience with the pressure cooker had really spooked me, and the more I stared at the pipe bomb, the more frightened I got. I knew that if I didn't get rid of it soon... I would vapor lock entirely. I slid the detonation switch forward impulsively, committing myself to action. Jumping out from behind the sprayer, I assumed my league-leading form and bowled the pipe along the concrete towards the door. Things went swimmingly at first. The bomb rolled straight at the door, and it was clear I'd put enough oomph on it to cover the distance. Then I saw the channel drain directly in its path. The drain was meant to keep water out of the cave, and in my haste, I had overlooked it entirely. When the bomb hit the metal grate covering the drain, it bounced several inches into the air and thudded into the oak doors. I dove for cover so I heard, rather than saw, what happened next. The double doors creaked open, and someone cut loose with an automatic weapon. The bullets wanged into the metal tank of the sprayer and exploded one of the tires. As loud as that sounded, with my cheek mashed into the concrete just inches away, it was nothing compared to the pipe bomb. It exploded with a deep, kettle-drum rumble, 
that accelerated into higher registers as a shockwave spread. The whole world seemed to go tumbling over a cliff. By the time I gathered my wits enough to pry myself off the ground, most everything that had gone up with the explosion had come down. But there was still a fine particulate suspended in the air, and as much as I wanted to, I couldn't ignore the detached human arm hanging by the crook of the elbow at the top of one of the ruined doors. My guess was the owner of the arm had mistaken the thud of the bouncing bomb for an attempt to force the door and had decided to give the besieger a surprise. I heard the crash of falling timbers from the conflagration behind me and the sirens of approaching fire trucks in the distance. Sulfur and the tang of hot metal filled the air. The winemaker's roam was burning. This was a time to charge boldly into the wine cave and take the fight directly to him. This was a showdown that Ray, Winnie, and I had sacrificed so much for. But as I stood on the threshold of the final confrontation, the thought of simply walking away came to me unbidden. I had been running on adrenaline and several stiff jolts from a flask I'd hidden on the backhoe. Now I was out of gas. I was feeling my 50-plus years and all the injuries I had sustained in the crazy run-up to the assault. In fact, I realized that I never expected to get this far. I figured that I would be killed before I got through the fence, or certainly before I blew up the generator. I never expected that there would be an opportunity to reconsider. I shook my head, as if to dislodge these thoughts. I owed it to the women at the bridal bit, to the countless others the winemaker might enslave, and most of all, to Winnie, to leverage my good fortune as long as it lasted. I checked my cell phone for status messages, but I wasn't really surprised to find a blank display. I followed protocol anyway and texted about entering the cave. Winnie was supposed to be coming through the rear entrance, and the idea was to join forces in the middle. The doors to the wine cave dangled open like elephant ears. I slipped in from the right, stepping over the ruined corpse of the shooter and the body of another man who must have been standing behind him. It didn't take long for someone else to join the party. A pistol shot erupted from a hallway at the back of the cave's front room. I dove to the floor like I was going to swim on it, thrusting the P-90 out in front of me. I aimed at the dim shape crouching in the hallway and pressed the trigger. The snub-nosed barrel vomited slugs, drowning out the cough of a second answering round. It missed by a mile. In the strobe-like muzzle flash from the P-90, I saw a man in fatigues slide herky-jerky down the rough gunite walls. I rolled to the side in case he had any fight left in him, but it was wasted motion. The pistol slipped from his hands, and then slowly, ever so slowly, he bent forward to press his forehead to the floor as if he were doing a yoga stretch. I got to my feet and sidled up to the hallway entrance. Shielding the bulk of my torso behind the wall, I thrust the assault rifle into the yawning darkness and hosed it down. The unmistakable sound of champagne bottles disgorging followed the crystalline ting of bullets hitting glass. That didn't leave much doubt about what was stored in the next room. I rushed through the opening, 
dodging through a pinched hallway into a larger space. In a scooped-out section along the left, hundreds of champagne bottles were stacked for aging. Bubbling liquid from the ones I'd shattered pooled below and in front. Beyond that, filling up the remainder of the cavernous space like giant shark's teeth, were rows upon rows of wooden A-shaped racks. I knew that they were riddling racks, used to hold bottles while they were methodically hand-turned to position the dregs of the wine for disgorging. But there was more than champagne and champagne paraphernalia. There was also a white-haired man with an automatic weapon in the far corner of the room. And just to make things really bizarre, two more men were turning bottles as if this were just another day at the office. Zombies. Riddling is a task that requires precise repetitive movements and was therefore the perfect operation to be automated by the winemaker's electronic slaves. On that score, I shouldn't have been surprised. But their presence suggested something else. Ray was supposed to have jammed the signal controlling the zombie workers by now. There was also the question of how the winemaker had the power to transmit the controlling signal. All this thinking took too long. The guy at the other end of the room used the time to level his weapon in my direction. Slugs nickered overhead and slammed into the racks between us. I ducked behind the nearest one. He continued firing as he dodged to my right, trying, I assumed, to bring the zombie workers into the line of fire and hamper my defense. I wasn't going to let that happen. I scampered left and then forward into the maze, cutting the distance between us. When I got to within a few rows of him, I took a knee to change the magazine on the P-90. Reardon, boomed a voice that sounded uncomfortably close. Your girl is dead. We evacuated the winemaker. Reinforcements are coming. There's no percentage in this. I couldn't let myself believe it. He was playing head games. Donovan, I guessed. He chuckled. My reputation precedes me. Yeah, as a murderer of civilians, we do what it takes. I crept forward, trying to hold my voice level as I answered. So the girls at the bridal bit were freedom fighters. A boot scraped nearby. All progress comes at a cost, he said, and I knew we were crouching behind racks, mere feet apart. We both made our move. He popped up with his M4 carbine on auto and began raining a stream of fire over the tops of the racks. If I had stood or even squirted out from the side, I would have been cut in half. Instead, I put my shoulder to the rack in front of me and launched forward. It was hinged at the top like a sandwich board, and the force snapped it closed and toppled it into the next rack. I kept driving with my legs until that rack toppled too, pinning Donovan at the waist under oak boards, broken wine bottles, and fizzing champagne. I struggled over the protruding wine bottles on the uppermost rack to get at him, only to realize that the P-90 had slipped from my grasp. As Donovan strained to retrieve his own rifle where it had landed by his head, I reached to pull the last weapon I carried— the knife on my ankle. I flopped onto him, my body splayed across his upper torso. 
He located his rifle and was attempting to pummel me with a stock, but my blade had already found its way between his ribs. We were chin to chin, the light fading from his eyes, when I hissed, How's that for progress? I rolled off him, yanking the knife from him as I stood. I wiped the blade on his shirt and put it back in the harness. I should have been jaded by all the killing, but this seemed like a new low. I glanced over my shoulder, shamed by what I'd done and what the Riddlers must think of me. I needn't have worried. They continued blithely with their task, grasping bottles, giving them a slight shake and turn, and then moving on to the next one. I retrieved the P-90 and then hurried to the rear of the chamber and the corridor leading further into the hillside. The next room was much like the last, containing wine barrels instead of champagne, and no people. The third and fourth rooms were just like the second. When I exited the final one, I stepped into a long corridor with an amber light glowing in the distance. I found the source of the light 50 yards down, an emergency LED powered by batteries. To the left of the lamp was a sliding steel door and a corpse with shotgun wounds lying in front of it. Winnie's calling card. I searched along the edge of the door, looking for a knob or a handle or some way to open it. Nothing. I yanked out my phone and pressed the button in the contacts list to call her a breach of planned protocol that was only to be used in case of extreme emergency. It was a waste of time. The phone showed no signal bars this far underground. Foolishly, I pounded on the door and then called her name. All I heard in response was the echo of my pounding reverberating down the corridor. Maybe she had fought her way in, found the same locked door, and decided to pull out. Or maybe the winemaker had sent reinforcements down after her and she'd been forced to retreat. I turned away from the door and hurried along the corridor toward the back door Ray had spotted during their reconnaissance flight. The hallway climbed steeply, and when I reached the crest of the rise, I spotted the inverted U-shape of the door and beyond that, the darker shade of the night sky. I was sprinting by the time I hurtled through the portal to the gravel turnaround beyond. I was convinced I would find a firefight in progress, but there was no one left to fight it. The door swung freely on its hinges, undamaged in any way from the pipe bomb Ray had given Winnie to open it. The shotgun body of one man was slumped in the driver's seat of a white van. A second lay in a bag-of-bones position by a ramp, extending from the back. Off to one side, in the shadow of a granite outcropping, lay a backpack. The backpack Winnie was supposed to have carried. I pressed the button on my phone to call hers and was not surprised and very depressed to hear it ring from within the pack. There was only one more thing that could go wrong, and I soon confirmed it. Twenty yards off, at the base of an aluminum transmission tower, was the wreckage of a second drone, a drone Ray was meant to be piloting. You have been listening to 
No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.